You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke, and today we're here with Aaron Barker. Born and raised in San Antonio, Texas, Aaron Barker got his first guitar at six years old and taught himself to play it. He spent a decade leading a band, The American Peddlers, as its lead singer and bass player, playing hundreds of honky-tonks and military basses. In 1988, he left the band to try to make it as a songwriter. Dead broke and working selling oranges by the side of the road, George Strait had chosen one of his songs, recorded it, and it became a hit. Today, he is a member of the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame and the Texas Heritage Songwriters Hall of Fame. He has written 10 top 10 country songs, including four number ones. like a lady but she was so much like a child the devil when she held me close an angel when she smiled she always held it deep inside but somehow I always knew she'd go away when the grass turned green and the sky turned baby Baby blue was the color of her eyes Baby blue like the Colorado skies Like a breath of spring she came and left And I still don't know why So here's to you and whoever holds my baby blue we're here with Aaron Barker, and uh, we're here to talk about your, some of your songs, some of your hit songs, or some of the not-hit songs, too, or oh, some things okay. that are on the shelf yeah. as well, if you'd like. So it, it's really it. up to you on what song you'd like to start with. I'll start at the beginning with a song called Baby Blue. Uh, that's where my whole career started. In order to get out of the truck stop job I was in, a band came through one night looking for a bass player, and they were filling up their little van and said they were seeking a bass player so the next day I went and bought a bass guitar and started and set up an audition and uh, I guess they were bad enough to uh, where I actually got the gig and I joined that band that was in San Antonio Texas my hometown which is full of military bases a lot of Air Force some Army and uh, because of that we started playing on these Air Force bases well, at that time, uh, the tail end of the Vietnam War, they were getting new troops in every six weeks. So we were getting thousands of new people in our audience on a regular basis. They would go out 
and asked for my band in Denver and Wichita Falls, Texas, all over the country. So we ended up just touring like that. Well, we'd be out on the road, whether it was in vans or trucks or buses as it evolved. I always uh, kept an acoustic guitar with me, even though I was a bass player in the band and wrote songs that I thought were in the vein of uh, James Taylor, Cat uh, Stevens. I loved that era, the Crosby, Stills, Nash era, the acoustic singer-songwriter era. Neil Diamond was my biggest influence ever. I've had the opportunity to meet him and write with him three times, write with him twice, meet him once, and I've declined all three times based on the theory that you never meet your heroes. I have him in a place in my mind, speaking of Neil Diamond, that he can't possibly be. He can't be what I have him made up to be. So it wouldn't be fair to him or me. Although now I'm an older guy, I would love to sit down and tell him thank you because he means so much to me. But he triggered this. And that's what I thought I was writing, more adult contemporary stuff. I had a country background from my youth, but I'd been playing this rock and roll now for a couple of decades. In my spare time, I would sit there and write these things. And this Baby Blue got into my mind. Uh, we were down in Mississippi, headed to Colorado, and it just kind of flowed out. I don't really know the inspiration for it, but it just kind of wrote itself from a melody into these words that s sounded good with that melody, and I never thought much of it. I had joined BMI uh, as a youngster because I was writing songs for my band, but this was outside of that, and I would go home and make little cassettes of these songs, give them to my mother and my brothers and friends around town. And this particular song, Baby Blue, was on a cassette with three or four other songs. And a friend of mine, I was actually frustrated to the point because my career was going nowhere as a writer, and I was just frustrated. I had this drawer full of lyrics and tablets and I was about to throw them all away. I think I literally had them in the air over my console, and I was going to the trash can, and a buddy said, no, just give me some of those cassettes. Let me just keep them. And one of them that I gave him had these four or five songs on it, one being Baby Blue, and he took them to a fella in Hondo, Texas, named Bill Butler, who was by profession a pharmacist, owned a pharmacy and a grocery store, but he was a uh, publisher as well, had a great little eight-track studio. For the time, that was pretty high-end stuff. And uh, he heard those ca that cassette and didn't really care for any of it. But he set the cassette down, and Bill Butler made an annual trek to Nashville to kind of throw stuff around of the writers that he had accumulated. And that cassette got in there in that stack that he brought to Nashville. And all it had on it was a piece of masking tape that said, Aaron, that's all it said. And that tape ended up getting inadvertently dropped off at Earl Wolsey's office, George Strait's manager. He heard it. He played it for George. George loved the song Baby Blue off of that cassette. So Earl Wolsey took the time to track me down through Bill Butler. Bill Butler said, yeah, I'll, I'll get him for you, you know, and... Uh, I ended up signing with Bill Butler, and then he worked a deal with Irv Wolsey, and I had no idea what this meant because uh, I just played in a band. I never made money writing, and I thought whoever this George Strait guy is, because I didn't know who he was. I was in the rock and roll world up to my ears, but uh, 
he lived right up the road from where I lived. He lived in San Marcos. I was in San Antonio, and I didn't know who he was. But I thought, well, if, if he records my song, maybe he'll send me like $500, you know. So I was pretty happy over that. At the time the band was breaking up, I was selling oranges off the back of my truck to make the house payment. Time went by, and, and no $500 check showed up. And I thought, well, I guess that George guy didn't make it. You know, <laughs> he must not have made it. He already had like four gold albums or something at the time, but I didn't know. And then another year went by, and this envelope showed up in my mailbox. And uh, it was from BMI, and I thought, of all times for BMI to start charging a membership fee, you know. And uh, I opened that envelope, and then there was a check with my name on it. The amount was for more than my house cost. I automatically went to, boy, did BMI make a big mistake here, because I, I had never even heard of money like that in reality, not even on a game show, you know. So I was pretty sure it was a mistake. That was a Friday evening, and I thought, well, Monday I'll call up to BMI and figure out what's going on. In the meantime, I wanted my mother to see my name on a check like that. She had put up with this guy that practiced in her garage with his band till the cops showed up for years and then more spandex and big hair playing rock and roll till he was 35. My mother deserved to see that check. So I drove over there. I showed her the check. She was really excited about it. And I didn't tell her it was most likely an error. I just wanted her to have that moment of joy. But she looked at it, showed it to my stepdad. And he looked at that check and he said, Aaron, I get these all the time. You never really win. <laughs> so he thought it was Publishers something. clear. Oh, yeah, he was looking for Ed McMahon's face on it or something. And so that was a funny, funny moment. That was the beginning of the whole thing. And that check, I called Monday to see if it was an error. And a fellow named Harry Warner, who worked at BMI, uh, had to look it up. That's pre-computerized stuff, pretty much. And he... Uh, he came back and said, uh, no, that's yours, Aaron. He said, that's from that George Strait recording. And uh, he said, those will be showing up about every three months for a while. So that's life-changing. And what those checks did pretty much is just fix a lot of broken stuff in my life. I was older when I got into this thing. The band was falling apart. I was 35. So I showed up at the circus real late here in Nashville. I was so grateful for that. You know, it got me a car that started when I turned the key. You know, I got four new tires instead of one at a time. Just things like that that you just think about every day and you wish for and you pray for. And all of a sudden it was here. And I made a pact with God. I said, I, I just won't ask for anything anymore because I had prayed for a break. This All I wanted in my life was a break, just one year to rethink, regroup, and figure out where I was going. And all of a sudden I had this incredible gift and uh, handed down to me and I just so I, I told God I'm not going to ask for it again this is enough and I've always lived like that was it and then a few years later Love Without End became a number one song and there were more after that but that one is the only one I really wanted and I tried I always want another hit but I try to never need one because then you get kind of desperate you know and I felt desperate at times, but Baby Blue was a life changer. And so that went to number one on the it country did. charts. It did. And did you have a number one party? We did. Uh, I barely had money to go to it. I don't really remember. I was so poor. I'm not poor. Just didn't have a lot of cash because these things happen. 
the song is number one, and when it's number one, the artist and the management and the record company all have a big party, and of course you're welcome to it, but it was in Nashville and I was in San Antonio. We don't get our funds for about a year after it is on the chart, so it's kind of out of sync there. Generally, I don't know that writers are too too cash short to go to their number one party. And I wasn't that. I had to borrow the money, though, from Bill Butler. He loaned me the money to fly up here and, and be part of that. But it's so out of sync. They're all celebrating a number one. Then a year later, the writer gets their, their money, and they want to celebrate, too. And everybody goes, oh, that's an old song. You know, all the <laughs> all the celebrations over. They've had five more number ones since then. So the writers, we're kind of on our own, which... Is a bonding unit, I think. It's a bonding element for the writers here in Nashville. So I, I celebrated on that one. So Baby Blue, you talk about the Colorado blues I guy, do, which yeah. is not where you're from. No, I'm from Texas, and I'll tell you what, I think this will make sense to you. Being from San Antonio, that's a wide open kind of a uh, desert area. So we have a big, beautiful sky. But in Colorado, it was a unique experience for me. They had mountains, they had rivers, but mostly they had these enormous trees. So you have these evergreens growing up 60, 70 feet in the air, 100 feet, and that sky off of that green looks so exceptionally blue to me because it was framed in these. So to me, that was the bluest sky I had experienced at that point. I thought about Mississippi, because Mississippi has big pine trees and the sky looks very blue, but it rains almost every day. So you kind of get this gray tint to it sometimes. But when we hit Colorado out of uh, Aurora, Colorado, I drove up to Estes Park and I just saw this incredibly blue sky off of the green trees. And and that's why I used Colorado skies, because they were just so definitively blue to me. I'm a little color deficient uh, with my vision, but... I can tell certain colors, and I could tell that blue so profoundly off of that green. So that's, I guess, why I used it. It just really had an effect on me. Do you remember where you were the first time you heard a song you wrote on the radio? I do. Tell me about that. I, I don't know if anybody would ever forget something like that. I was, uh, I still had the band. It was the last days of the of the band. It really wasn't a formal band anymore, but we had several commitments that I put guys together to fill, and we had this show in Corpus Christi, Texas. Drove down there in a Cadillac with a trailer on the back, I think, because we didn't have our bus anymore or anything. So we just wanted to make sure we filled our contract. And coming back, it was probably 3 in the morning, and I'm driving up uh, I-37 or Highway 281, whatever it is, and that, that ties the two together at that time. And I'm driving along, and uh, I heard that steel guitar come in on Baby Blue, and I knew what it was. And uh, I pulled over. I mean, I couldn't believe it because coming off of a, of a radio, I'm a broadcast nut. I love broadcasting. And uh, when I was a little kid laying in my bunk bed, I could look out the window and see these three radio towers from KBER Radio, and the lights blinked in sequence on the top, the little red lights. And I would go to sleep watching those lights and listening to a guy named Jerry King, uh, the, the DJ who I later met and we're really good friends now. But I would listen to his voice and watch those lights and go to sleep. And I would always imagine he's down here and it actually was a little motor, mobile home with his broadcast, you know, like we're sitting here kind of with these mics in front of us. And 
I knew that his voice, I didn't know how at the time, but his voice was coming off of that tower, those towers, and coming to my radio, reaching me in the middle of the night while I'm going to sleep, and it was a comforting thing. So I've been a fan of broadcasting forever, and here all of a sudden are these words and this melody that I put together on a band bus in the middle of the night coming out of Colorado, you know, and they're coming off of them. I'd heard George's recording of it. MCA is always gracious enough to call us and say, you got to hear this. But to hear it on the radio and know that wasn't me that called and said, hey, could you play that song? It just happened. And it's a moment. Yeah, so I was somewhere between San Antonio and Corpus Christi sitting on the side of the road with a choir of coyotes around me listening to Baby Blue. And it was uh, an overwhelmingly you know, great moment. Couldn't believe it. But you didn't think that a check was going to come a few months from that. I did not. That, I really thought it time. was going to be $500. For some reason, $500 stuck in my head. I must have really needed $500. I had no idea. I had no idea. And you didn't know that it was rising in the charts? You, you didn't follow that? I didn't that? follow any of that. Uh, Bill Butler, you know, he kept me kind of informed, the publisher down in Hondo. But I didn't. I was struggling desperately at the time and uh, didn't have – I didn't even – I had no idea what – you know, I'd signed the publishing deal with Bill. I'd been a member of BMI. So none of that ever occurred to me. You know, it just, I knew nothing about the business of music. I knew music a little bit. And even now, I'm not, I am in no way qualified to deal with the business end of music. I know very little about it. I've made a lot of mistakes uh, dealing with business people, you know because I step on toes thinking that's my job and my responsibility. And so I get people mad at me because I don't know the business. I don't want to know the business. So you have Baby Blue, goes to number one. Mm -hmm. George Strait says to you, what else you got? Is he did, yeah. His manager did. They signed me immediately after Baby Blue and thought they would get me a record deal as an artist. George seemed to like the way I sang, although I've never been fond of it myself. Uh, and so for a long time, they actually shopped me for a record deal, and I landed on Atlantic Records, proceeded to make probably the worst record ever made in Nashville. I haven't heard them all, but I've got to be in there in the, t in the top worst five. It's a terrible record. I was very uncomfortable with it. I thought I, I could do it. I thought I could go ahead and go out and play the shows and stuff. I'd been on the road for 20 years anyway. But they started highlighting my hair and dyeing my beard and took me over to uh, Banana Republic to buy clothes. And I started feeling kind of phony, you know. And then the money thing got in there where they said, well, we want this much of the deal and we want this much of the deal. And I've never, ever been musically motivated by money, ever. And money became such an important element of it. I was really uncomfortable in that, and finally, uh, I was kind of guess relieved that the the record was so bad <laughs> because it wasn't going to go anywhere. And uh, the video was uh, a little ahead of its time, and it got played a lot on TNN, whatever those shows were at the time. What was the song? Uh, it's called "The Taste of Freedom," and okay. the video guys seemed to love it. It was it it was a Vietnam era song. It was based in the Vietnam era about a guy who you know, went over there and paid for freedom, came back and found out he was he didn't have his girlfriend anymore, and it was a different kind of freedom than he expected. And it's kind of a sad story, and that that was Bob Orman's critique on it was get a life because it's kind of that, that kind of song, God, it just lost everything. And it, But we had uh, 
soldiers in there. We showed some scenes. I didn't put the video together. I just wrote the song and stood on a platform and sang, and then they put in all the stuff around me. But in that process, they they staged scenes of, uh, you know, soldiers in the jungle, and in there were uh, uh, African-American soldiers, which is very Vietnam. Those guys, man, they stepped up, you know. And so it was real. But I guess certain people in country music weren't quite ready for that. And I took a serious beating for that. I was, I'm not going to repeat what I was told, but that I knew that day and I was commuting from San Antonio and I went back to the Ramada Inn and almost cried. I was so shocked and disappointed that these people who are making literally hundreds of millions of dollars were still in that frame of mind. It stunned me. And I knew that day, this is done. I'm done with this because I have no idea what I'm up against. That's the last thing I thought I would be up against. Two or three years later, Travis Tritt came out with I Don't Love You Anymore, and he not only had a black vet, but he had a disabled black vet and featured him in that video, and it was fine. But that two or three years just made enough difference. Uh, that's I'm not blaming that for everything. It was a bad record. But that element, really shocked me completely. And if I could use the language that they used and the references that they used, you would understand why it was so shocking. It wasn't just that, oh, you've got black guys in your video. It's it's the way they presented it to me. You and felt they were wrong. I knew they were wrong. And uh, the record label was fine with it, but there were certain parties that just weren't going to it's hard. It's hard when you know it. you're on the side of right. Well, and you're, it's up to them. It's your money all the time. It's your name on the record. It's your picture on the record. But there are still people that yank all the chains. And uh, that was just a shocker for me. It wasn't the, the kiss of death. It wasn't the end game. But it was a part for me that just my heart just kind of went, you know what? <laughs> I just want to make songs, man. And I'll give them to somebody else to sing. <laughs> Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I sit home from school one day with a shiner on my eye Fighting was against the rules and it didn't matter why When Dad got home I told that story just like I'd rehearsed Then stood there on those trembling knees and waited for the worst And he said, let me tell you a secret about a father's love A secret that my daddy said Was just between us He said daddies don't just love their children Every now and then It's a love without end, amen It's a love without end, amen So Love Without End, Amen, which was released by George Strait in 1990, two years after Baby Blue. Mm -hmm. 
also went to number one. It went number one, and it was Georgia's uh, first multi-week number one. He had had a lot of number ones, but this one stayed for five, six, seven weeks, I don't know, a long time. So that was a big leap forward. A lot of Dean Dillon, uh, some of the, the primary writers for George Strait and myself at that time, the CMA and, and some of those people were trying to make room for the new artists. They do that a lot, where a guy's had a decade of hits and they're ready to move on and they don't focus on them. And George had kind of gotten, George Strait had gotten into that little gap uh, where his name stopped coming up at the award shows so much and uh, radio was starting to pull back. And, and that song seemed to kind of just come out of nowhere and, and, and deliver a message George hadn't really focused on, a more of a spiritual depth to it. I don't know what had anything to do with it, but he was hosting the awards about a year and a half two later. You know? So uh, I think everybody's career kind of wants to do that. And, and rightfully so, the industry wants to move forward. And Garth was trying to get out there, you know, right at that point. And they were just trying to make room for the new big guy, you know. But George kind of stepped out there and stepped up and maintained his kingdom. You know, he's still King George. Garth, there was plenty of room for all of them, as it turns out, you know. But Love Without End was uh, his first multi-week number one. You write a lot of love songs. I do write a lot of love songs. And this is a love song? It is a love song. It's uh, it's kind of a lost love song, but not over a cheating situation or anything like that. It's more of a, a relationship that, that can't really happen. It, it was a not a forbidden relationship, but just a relationship that, and it, it was pretty much fabricated in my head as, uh, I guess, some loss in my life or something I couldn't have that personified itself as a love song. And uh, I try to work off of inspiration, so I'm certain that something inspired it, not necessarily a human relationship, but something in my life. A lot of my songs are that way. Uh, we had a, a turbulent household for a while when I was pretty young and I'm sure that there are elements in there that I missed and have compensated for by writing about them. Fathers are one thing you know when I wrote Love Without End Amen and, and I've had people come say your father must really be something well the reality is he left when I was three and my mother who's one of the strongest bravest most incredible women I've ever met people not just women she raised those three boys for several years before she remarried, and that, that was so tough. So I think Love Without End is compensating for that dad. It's, it's my, well, what I did, when, when your dad leaves and you're a kid, you find role models somewhere. And, of course, I had an uncle who was incredible. He was more like a brother. But I watched Andy Griffith a lot. So he was my, like, father figure, and I just put myself in the Opie thing and said this is how that interaction would be. So... That's where kind of Love Without End came from. Uh, and my mother remarried, had a wonderful stepdad, but I was a little older and didn't bond the way one would with their biological father. So my daddy's songs are all filling that void, kind of painting a picture of what I would like to have had a lot of times. So Love Without End, Amen, went to number one, and so you had a number one party? We did, uh... That was a big one, and uh, we celebrated. And then my mother, she, of course, never expected a second number one either. I, well, none of us ever expected that. But she realized that all of the number ones were in Nashville. So we had one here that was incredible. 
the, the Woolsey Company sure knows how to celebrate these number ones. And George was always gracious enough to be part of them. But my mother called and said, you know what, all of the guys you grew up with, all, your, all of our neighbors over on the south side and the neighbors that you graduated with, they don't get to see this stuff and celebrate it. So she said, I'm going to throw a number one party for you here in San Antonio. And I said, Mom, don't, don't do that because that's thousands of dollars. To, and she said, all you have to do is bring your gold records so they can see them and we'll hang them up and let everybody look at this stuff, all your awards and stuff. So I said, okay, and I get down there. She's hired a band. She's had it catered in one of the greatest barbecue places in Texas. She really did a great job. And uh, then I found out she had invited George and Irv, and I thought, Mom, <laughs> not going to happen, okay? But it, it was nice of her to do. I wouldn't even have. He showed up. He showed up at this number one party in San Antonio with his manager and his wife, and all the people I grew up with on the south side and the north side had the monstrous video cameras. This is what, 93, you said, 92, something like that? 1990. Yeah, and they have those big oversized video cameras. And all of a sudden, they're in George's face. You know, they're taking home videos of George straight at this thing. And I'm watching my career completely dissipate because they overwhelmed him. And I was embarrassed i was scared i couldn't get to them i couldn't stop them they were nice but they were just a little overwhelming and the only person i could get to of any significance regarding that was norma george's wife and i got to her and i said norma i am so sorry if i had known i would have got security in here and norma looked at me and said he gets paid pretty good for this stuff and it just relieved all of that worry and tension that they even realized that. You know, this is part of it. And George has always been so great about that. You know, just given, he's always been grateful. You go, George, thank you for cutting that song. And he'll go, are you kidding me? Thank you for letting me have a song of that caliber. You know, he's always been really gracious like that. But that night, it was all kind of new to me. I'd been in it for two or three years. And, and George has always uh, been kind of intimidating to me. Uh, we're not buddies. We we don't play golf together, and and he's to me he's he's a star, and and I still get kind of starstruck around him even now. I just have never like I told you I'm kind of an introvert, and so these things, and when that happened at that number one party, I just was terrified, and he and Norma calmed it all so quickly. She was so great about it, so. That's one of my favorite stories about that. They didn't have to call the cops that night. No, they didn't, man. Everybody was great. It just happened unexpectedly. I, it, you know, I overreacted. But so it, George was still willing to work with you after that. You had another number one at Easy Come. I did Easy, Easy Go. Come Easy Go, which was a blast. She's had enough of me I've had enough of her too I might as well go on and set her free She's already turned me loose No fault, no blame, nobody done no wrong That's just the way it sometimes goes Sometimes two people just don't get along it's time 
take it slow Easy come girl, easy go I was called by, uh, I still living in San Antonio, a pretty happy guy, playing these happy hours on the Riverwalk, uh, doing a lot of cover music from Waylon and Willie, because that's what people that come to San Antonio expect. It's in a little uh, club called the Lone Star Cafe on the Riverwalk. So they kind of expect Texas music, and I was doing the Willie and Waylon, some of my own. And I got a call one day uh, after the happy hour thing from the publishers here, and they said, you need to be doing some co-writing and I didn't know what that meant because my right, the the two songs prior to that were, were both self-written. I didn't I didn't know what co-writing was. I just wrote them out of inspiration of my own. And so I had gotten this kind of concept about writing that if I could paint, if I was a visual artist, that I would paint. I would take these ideas and these visions in my mind or whatever I'm looking at, my interpretation of it, and put it on canvas with my interpretation. So I thought of my writing the same way. I can't paint, so I use words. I'm gonna I'm gonna take this vision and paint a picture using words. That's how I thought of my writing. And when they said co-writing is when we get you with another hit songwriter and y'all get together and write a song. And I don't know if I said it out loud or it just rang in my head real loud, but it was I've never bought a painting with two signatures at the bottom of it. <laughs> So it didn't make a lot of sense to me, but they said, that's what we do in publishing. We, we uh, think of it as networking in the corporate world. We combine resources, another hit songwriter, their publishing company gets involved. They have connections and we have connections. We get these things done. So it became a business venture. And they made an appointment for me with a writer who is now also Hall of Fame writer, Dean Dillon, who had had a lot of George Strait hits. And, but I didn't know him. I knew of him. And I got a real cheap hotel room uh, in South Nashville. And uh, the next morning, Dean Dillon's knocking on my door. And uh, here's a stranger. You know, he's got a guitar with him. And he comes in and he sits down on the floor. And I sat on the floor. And we, we did a thing I call co-staring because we didn't know each other. We didn't know what to say. And Dean finally started talking and said, let's go get license plates for my Pontiac. And we went riding around. And he had restored a 65 Pontiac Monteville convertible it's beautiful so we're we're styling we're riding around we go get license plates and we start talking and dean's talking about a divorce that he's going through with three young children involved and it was really wearing on him bad and uh, my thinking was i don't know if dean's going to want to write at all because he's kind of been you know having some trouble and i thought man i just drove all the way from san antonio to this cheap hotel we probably ought to try anyway so i started trying i said dean why don't we write about what you're talking about and he said i don't want to crawl in that dark spot and try to write a song and i, I thought man i'm i'm in trouble here and I, I brought up the analogy of it's our painting we can paint it however we want maybe the way it could be or should be or the way we wish it was and he kind of opened up to that idea as opposed to just writing about how it is. And we went back and started playing guitars. And Dean has all these beautiful chords. And he's such a great melody guy. And so he gets us a direction and starts rolling out these words. And I think it was kind of therapeutic for both of us. And we ended up with Easy Come, Easy Go, which is uh, a relationship that ends, but it ends on a more, you know, hey, just didn't work out. Let's just move on. And that was so healing for both of us. 
And ironically, I was getting a divorce at that time too, but I didn't know it yet. So it didn't <laughs> influence my writing. And, but, you know, we turned and then I learned, uh, I learned a lot from Dean, uh, how to approach a song more conversational because the mentors that I had worked with earlier who were so gracious after my first number one to invite me into their homes uh, were, uh, a little older school than Dean or than what George did. They were from the, uh, the early 60s era, and, and the rules were a little bit different And that they, they liked hard rhymes. If you used the word love, you had to use dove or above. You weren't allowed to go enough or tough or any phonetically close, and they counted syllables. And Dean just almost talks conversationally in his music, and that opened up a whole new... So the co-writing thing was such a great lesson like that. And we wrote Easy Come, Easy Go. That thing went number one. And uh, Dean and I, we had a big number one party on that. And Dean and I had a big time. We've been, from my perspective, really, really good friends for a very long time <laughs> and gone through a lot of changes together. And uh, Dean is doing so good now. And uh, he just keeps writing hits. He's iconic. There was nothing at first God turned that nothing Into heaven and earth And all of creation In six days and nights Just before Sunday He turned on the lights and Then he made horses For cowboys to ride Loyal companions Best friends for life So one of the things I ask songwriters is talk to me about a song that's on the shelf. But in your case, is there a voice, in quotes, that you would love to sing this oh, yeah. song? Yeah. When I, when I write uh, myself, I, I write more by myself. During the – when I was signed with George's company, I felt an obligation to co-write. That's corporate stuff and it's business. But I came into this thing writing by myself. Those first couple number ones and some since then I wrote by myself. And I feel like I did my obligatory co-writing and I loved it, the people and the, the friendships you make. But I have since come back to writing by myself. When I do that, I write the song for the song when I get inspired. I write for the song. Then I cast it. It's kind of like you read a, a novel and then you go, you know, Tom Cruise would play this lead part great. You don't consider that when you're writing the novel. You know, you, you wait till it's written and then you pick your cast. That's how I do my songs. I, and yes, I have one called Then He Made Horses. Tell me about the song first and then I want to know who well, the cast. Uh, George, George Strait introduced me to rodeo. Uh, I love the rodeo. I used to go every year in San Antonio in February 
and watched rodeo. But George does this roping thing. And they were kind enough to invite me to that, where I got to know these cowboys, not just watch them from a distance, but watch them prepare, watch them compete, watch them win, watch them lose, watch them interact with each other. And I learned that they're athletes, for one thing. They're not little hicks from out there on the farm. They're solid as a rock. They're tough guys. And gals, too. Man, those barrel roper, barrel riders and barrel racing, I guess. Uh, I love all that stuff. Th- these are in-shape people, and I-, I admired that so much, but mostly I admired their relationship with their horses, with their animals. It's almost like they they were family. It wasn't, this is my pet horse. I mean, there's a bond there. I admired that bonding between these cowboys, cowgirls, and their horses. Well, fast forward about 15 years, I got involved with uh, the the Florida restaurant and lodging association after the bp oil spill the event horizon thing what was that called the uh, deep deep, deep, Hor- horizon. deep horizon gulf uh, yeah the, and we just spill. called it the bp oil spill yeah. but that damaged tourism so much and uh florida restaurant and lodging association a, a woman named uh, carol dover reached out to songwriters here to bring us down to try to rebuild the uh tourism by putting songwriters in festivals, just creating festivals all over the Gulf Coast and generated uh, a little bit of tourism like that. Through that, I got invited to an event in, uh, I think it's called Wellington, Florida, and it's a horse community, but it's polo and dressage. It's not rodeo. It's very upscale elite. These horses are incredible. They come from Belgium and stuff. You know, people shop for months overseas and then have them brought over and go through all this paperwork. And as different as that was from the team roping that that George had introduced me to, as different as that was, I realized that bond between the rider and the horse was identical. The same passion and respect, mutual between the animal and the handler, that was an eye-opener for me, that it, it's not a cultural thing. It's, it's about that horse. While I was in Wellington, Carol Dover, who had introduced me to all this stuff from the Florida Restaurant Lodging, had a horse she had brought over from Belgium, I believe, named Rocco. And that horse did not take to her. She had it for a couple of years, and it just wasn't working out. And she had to sell him. She found a wonderful buyer. But she had to part with that horse. And the exchange time was while, while we were in Wellington. And watching her part with that horse was incredibly sad, <laughs> knowing this bond that they had. And I, I was, in my mind, watching this cowboy from Texas separate himself from his horse. And it, it just so I wanted to write a song that was a tribute. I didn't want to. I was inspired to. And when it calls, you just have to do it. That kind of speaks to that bond, that it's a, a lifelong bond. And uh, so that's what uh, then he made horses. It's basically God made everything in six days. And then he made horses for cowboys. And uh, and that when he made cowboys, uh, he gave them this kind of a tough life. So he gave them horses to ride that trail with. And, you know, so it's a tribute to horses and also the people that love them. And I love the song. Uh, commercially, I don't know. It's three-quarter time, which 
they would call a boss and they would hate it, but it's really six, eight time, which is similar. But uh, I would love to have Willie Nelson sing that song. <clears throat> I think George could do it, but, I mean, George can sing anything. But Willie is, uh, to me, more of a cowboy cowboy, and, and George is rodeo-type cowboy. There's kind of two different personalities there. Uh, Willie's the kind of guy you think he was born maybe 100 years late because he would have fit into the West really well, the Wild West. He loves that, and he, he's good at it. George is a rodeo-type cowboy, current, modern, farm-raised, that kind of cowboy. So in the horse thing, it's more of a Western-type cowboy thing than a rodeo cowboy. So, yeah, Willie. Because the question I had in my mind is, have you written any song for Neil Diamond to play? God, no. I've just been inspired by him. I There's I, no song in your... In your repertoire, that you would say, no, God, I would just no. love it if Neil because I'll never, this. I'll never, I'll never do that. Okay. I'll never be good enough. I'll never feel good enough about a song to to even show it to him, much less pitch it to him. He doesn't need my help. Neither does Willie. They both write wonderfully, uh, which was a blessing with George. He he can write and he does write, but he didn't write a lot of his records, and uh, so that was good for all of us here in Nashville. So one of your rodeo songs is I Can Still Make Cheyenne yes, it by is. George Strait. Her telephone rang about a quarter to nine She heard his voice on the other end of the line She wondered what was wrong this time Never knew what his calls might bring With a cowboy like him it could be anything And she always expected the worst in the back of her mind He said it's cold out here and I'm all alone Didn't make the short go again And I'm coming home During that time of the 90s, early 80s, that was uh, kind of a prevalent aspect of country music. It wasn't so dance-driven and party-driven like it is now. It's kind of like a big frat party out there now. Everybody's having fun. But we were we were covering, we, uh, the writers and artists, a lot of the artists of that time were covering uh, life experiences that were maybe a little more serious than a frat party. Uh, if you look at Garth's uh, If Tomorrow Never Comes, if you look at the dance, these were... Uh, were pretty serious topics that, that my experience with country music, the market overall was that when I had a bad time in my life, I could turn on the radio and know that I wasn't the first one to ever have that situation. So as a writer, I feel there's some responsibility to send something out there that might sound really negative, like a breakup, but it can have a very positive effect on people. And, uh, because I experienced that. I mean, I, I'd hear uh, the dance, uh, even though I was really sad and maybe having trouble at home in my marriage, and I'd hear the dance and go, as, as sorrowful as that song can be, it's really a positive thing because I realized I'm in the dance. I'm part of the dance right now. This is how the dance goes. So I feel a responsibility as a writer. Uh, it's, it's subconscious, but to try to not put anything out there that would damage or offend people, and I, 
I wish more people thought that way. But I think there is some cultural responsibility, uh, at least if you're going to be in country music. It's an American art form. It's a folk type of, and I think it should focus on the values that that Americans have. You know, we have certain mor- moral directions and yeses and nos. I mean, they're changing all the time, but sort of formulate that into something musical and into a story is where I started relating it more to my years in the band. Instead of trying to think like a rodeo guy that called home, I thought, you know what, I've lived that myself. So yeah, I had a a good co-writer. And I guess people look at that and go, oh, Irv Woolsey, that's why George cut it. That is not correct at all. Uh, Being part of George Strait's organization was sometimes a... uh, a deficit, you know, because they were very, very critical. And they, one thing, George always took the best song. He didn't care who wrote it. He didn't even know who wrote them. Uh, he, he, I heard, and I can't validate this or verify it, but that he was listening when he was traveling by bus. He was listening to like 4,000 songs a year and recording 10. And he never overcut. He cut 10 songs. If, if you got a call on Monday or Tuesday and they said, George Strait just cut your song, you knew you were on that record because he didn't cut 11 and then drop one off. A lot of artists will overcut, and labels do that because then they have an extra album later. You know, George never did that. He, he kept it 10 at a time for a long, long time. He may still do that. I don't know, but uh, it just, uh, that's a lot of songs to listen to, you know, 4,000 songs to get one. So that song was just in the pile, I guess, like everybody else's. Yes, it's got his manager's name on it, but he was a, a legitimate contributor to the song. It wasn't just put on there to, to make points. Uh, Irv and I were very good friends, spent a lot of time together visiting and talking and hanging out. And, uh, you know, just because he doesn't sit down and craft out a song doesn't mean he doesn't have a good idea. Once and any writer will tell you that. Some of the best ideas come from just in a restaurant. Somebody will say something and you go, oh, my God, you know. So that's kind of how that happened. I like this song because it reminds me of payphones. Um, yeah. Which, you know, there's a generation that doesn't even know what you're no, talking that, about no. when you mention a payphone, but there's a, a payphone in the story. That's funny you would bring that up because I, I learned, I was told early, be careful what technology you use in a song. A guy had that told me this. He said, I wrote a song that had a codophone in it. And I'm going, what in the world is a codophone? Well, it's an answering machine. But he said, by the time I demoed the song, they were out of style completely. And uh, What in the world's an answering machine? Yeah, what is that? <laughs> so now we have message, you know, you get your voicemail. That never crossed my mind with Cheyenne. When I wrote I Can Still Make Cheyenne, it was just so natural to go, I left that phone dangling off the hook on a payphone. But now, you know what? 15 years later, it didn't even take that long for payphones to become sketchy. You know, or I take pictures of them when I see them so I, I can show young people, this is what I'm talking about. I'll take the receiver off the hook and say, this is a phone dangling off the hook. They're hard to find. That's why America's in so much trouble. We don't have Superman. He has no place to change anymore. All the phone booths are gone. But, I, I think uh, if someone wrote this song today, that the wife would be texting yeah, the, the rodeo yeah. cowboy that there there was someone new. Yeah. Well, again, I was writing off of inspiration. It's not a big leap to go from a rock and roll guy on the road all the time. That life and the rodeo life are very, very parallel. 
uh, although rock and rollers aren't near physically as fit <laughs> as the rodeo guys, but our lifestyle and that we're gone a lot, that we are passionate about it, that we will forsake a home stead, you know, that being home, we'll forsake that comfortable lifestyle. It's really not a choice. We don't forsake it. We just have to do this. And I, I know that rodeo guys are the same way. It's not a choice. And the woman that says you need to choose doesn't understand that guy or that person. It's not just guys. I keep using guys, you know, a lot of great women rodeo people. But it wasn't a hard leap for me to take my experience on the road as a, as a rock and roll player and kind of insert it, insert cowboy here because it's the same kind of life. So I just, the story is accurate, except that mine was more of a music experience than a rodeo experience, but the same thing. And in my days on the road, when I wanted to call home, I had to stop the van or the bus or the car, whatever we were in, and find a pay phone at a gas station. And I would put in my quarters and call home and it would ring and I'd add more, you know, ding, and I'd put in more quarters. That's all a thing of the past now. You know, I think it's, it goes fast. But I never dreamed when I wrote Cheyenne that, that pay phones would be out out of the conversation at any time in the foreseeable future, you know. But it kind of dated the song now. So that went to number four on the country charts. Yeah, but it's still one. You know, that's an odd thing, too. I had a lot of number ones, but I think the term hit uh, is actually formulated from the word impact that when a song had an impact on people and then they got this number system. But if you look historically, a lot of the biggest, most impactful songs weren't ever number one. They're like number 15 and stuff. And this one's kind of proving that out to me, the Cheyenne. It was not a number one song, but historically it's still one of the most popular songs. I'm trying to think, uh, big artists, and you, and you hear later on they never had a number one song, and you know every word of every song they ever did, and you go, are you kidding me? But, uh, yeah, I don't go much by numbers. Right, right. No, I, I think this song has aged well in the sense that there's a story arc to it. The rodeo cowboy gets the bad news, yeah. and it's not unexpected. No, it's, it's pretty natural, kind of like it happened before maybe. But what I love about it is he goes, well, that's all right. I can make shine. He goes right back to his rodeo blood. You know, I mean, that's what his life is. They had a lot of other songs recorded by people other than George Strait. One of my favorites is What About Now? Yeah, What About Now? That's a funny story if you don't, if you have time. Yeah, I got all day. I was watching TV one night, and George Strait came on the TV, and he's leaning on a Chevy Silverado truck, and uh, 
the truck was pretty and he was pretty. I mean, it all looked good, but he wasn't singing. And I'm used, man, George Strait's a singer, you know. He was just talk, talking about this truck. And I thought, you know, if I wrote something really cool about trucks, and I'm, I'm not a good write-on-demand guy, but I thought, man, maybe I can find some inspiration on on traveling or, or transportation or something that would relate to that type of a commercial and make it really good and get him to sing it in the next commercial. And so I worked on this thing for the longest time, even called in friends on it. We wrote it. We demoed it. George came to Nashville, and I uh, made an appointment to go play. <laughs> he hated it, man. He said, I'm not singing that thing. And I went, oh, no, all that work, you know, down the drain. And then I actually ended up locating the General Motors guy, you know, that was kind of in charge of that ad, thinking, well, if I get him on board, maybe he'll influence straight a little bit. He hated it. So here this thing sits at home in my what I call fire hazard drawer. It's the drawer with all the songs nobody liked. And it just sat there for the longest time. And one day a friend called me from his studio in downtown Nashville and asked me to bring him a CD, a copy of something we had written. So I drove in and I walked into his studio and I was dropping it off. He's in there with another friend of mine. It's Ron Harbin and Anthony Smith. And they're trying to write this song together. And I drop off the CD and they start explaining that they're trying to write this big power ballad. I think it was right after Lone Star had done uh, Amazed, that big power ballad. So they were trying to kind of get into that vein and because we all knew Richie McDonald and all the guys, you know, and Dean Sams and those, we knew them all really well. We thought, well, if we get a good song, they were thinking if we get a good song, we'll get it recorded. But their drum machine that they were new to was playing a fast beat and would not slow down. It, it was broke. It was actually malfunctioning, but they couldn't slow it down to get to this power ballad beat. And it's on this kind of tempo thing. And they're really frustrated and they're telling me their dilemma, and I'm starting to go, you know what, that old Chevy commercial that nobody liked would go really good with that beat. And if we change some lyrics around, we can get to the story y'all are trying to tell. So we just started talking about this, and we took a broken drum machine, a broken Chevy commercial, and a broken power ballad, and ended up with a song called What About Now, Ron Harbin. I think they were going to call it How About Now, and that hit me kind of sideways, like, how now, brown cow? It just sounded a little too nursery rhymish or something. So I said, how about what about now instead of how about now? That was no big deal to anybody, just my own personal. So we wrote that song, and we did a great demo on it, and then Lone Star recorded it. And that doggone thing went number one. I think it stayed seven weeks at number one. It was a big hit for Lone Star. We were all thrilled to death because Ron and Anthony are two of my dearest friends, and to have a hit with them was just such, they weren't, that was kind of new to them. And boy, you talk about celebrating. And uh, So you had number one party. Oh, yeah, we did. I think we had a couple of them because they were, I think, ASCAP writers, and I was BMI, so we had one with BMI, one over there at ASCAP. And uh, it was a great time because when it happens with just friends, you know, and it's like they're, I don't know if it was their first number one, but it was close to it. And so it was all new. And we just had such a big time. And the irony of the whole thing is about a year after that song came off the charts, guess who called to see if they could use it for a commercial? <laughs> it was actually Toyota. But Toyota used that thing for about a year for uh, 
regional, national, they, they went region at a time across the country with it for about a year. So it got to be full circle. You know, it was going to be a commercial. It had to go through the number one song route and became a commercial that it was meant to be in the Did they use the lyric or just the melody? The, whole, the, or the, the little chorus. What about now? How about tonight? And they talked about Toyotas the whole time. You need a Toyota. What was, about now? Yeah, How about tonight? It, I just couldn't believe it. And, uh, so it got to be what it was supposed to be, and I got to share it with some really dear friends, and we all celebrated and had a good time. As we passed in the hall, she said we need to talk. Can't go on like this another day I froze in my tracks And a chill ran up my back Cause I knew what she was gonna say She said there's someone else And I've kept it to myself But I can't keep these feelings locked inside need to tell you this It's one of your old friends But one you haven't talked to in a while She said I'm leaving And there's nothing you can do I always let the artist pick the songs. Is there another song you like to talk about? Or do you want me to just ask you about stuff? Well, you can ask me, and if I think of something, I'll tell you about it. I, you mentioned something earlier about the the female in the Cheyenne song. Yes. She said, I'm going to take care of me. And it, it sets up with this guy. He knows something's wrong in his household with his spouse. He knows it's wrong, and so he's walking down the hall, and they kind of cross paths, and she said, you know we need to talk. And he kind of knows where this is going. And she says, I need to tell you this, man, you know. I've kept it to myself, but there's somebody else, and, but it's someone you don't know and uh, someone you haven't talked to in a long time and you don't know him. And it turns out it's her. She's leaving him for her, for her own. So it's called I'm Leaving You For Me, but it kind of hits him really hard because he's he's got all these suspicions. She's got a guy on the side. She's leaving me for another man. And she just turns right around and says, you know, that's not it at all. I'm leaving you for me. And that's a hard one to argue with, you know. When your girlfriend or wife or something says, you know what, this, this ain't about another person. I'm just leaving you for my own good, you know. And I think it's a powerful song that I'd like to see get cut someday. So Aaron Tippin cut that, and that was the one. I got that oh, confused. Oh, he did, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, I got that one confused with... Um, you know, I shouldn't have forgot that, uh, but I did. And you know why? Because of all... When he said he was going to cut it, this is an interesting little thing. When... When Aaron Tippin actually went into the publishing company and said, I'm looking for country music at a time when that was not a real popular thing to say because everywhere we we traditional writers were taking our songs, everybody was saying, well, that's too country. And my response was, I'm sorry, I thought I was in Nashville. you know. <laughs> but there was an era that it was just too country. Probably still is that way. But that song kept getting that back. That's too country. That's too country. Here comes Aaron Tippin, who I love his music, and his wife, too. It's just such the great writers themselves and great singers. And uh, 
I loved Aaron's work, and all of a sudden, he's in there asking specifically for country music, and I was so proud of him. And he got that song, and he actually cut it. But of all times, for him to kind of go a little outside of traditional. So I was a little disappointed in his track on it, because I think if Aaron Tippin would have just did the typical tipping on it, it probably might have done a little better. I don't even know what it did on the charts. It went it? to 17. It was uh, 1999. Yeah. I, I still think if you make the top 20, top 100, well, I guess top, it is, top 40. It's just you know, got such a good sentiment that I would I would like more people to, to hear that. Uh, some women's group out of Colorado picked up on it and used it kind of for a theme for abused women, battered women, and they, it, because it's good for that. It's got this strength in it where women go, you know what, that's enough. I'm, I'm leaving you for my own good. And that is such a powerful message, not because I wrote it. It's just a good way to say it without preaching. And Tippin did. I, I apologize, Aaron. I forgot about that. I have a good memory. It's just short. But I was a little disappointed that it wasn't more traditional. I expected the typical Aaron Tippin just. So today, yeah, 2019, yeah. 20 years later, if you could pick a voice to record. I'd go for Blake Shelton. You wouldn't go for a woman. It seems to me that that... No, well, it's written from the male perspective. Is it? Okay. But I guess it could be... I, you know, I never Flip looked around. at it that way. I don't know if it would be preaching if a woman did it. If but the a guy... Girl, the girl group is doing it in Colorado. Well, I guess they could. I, I'll look at that. I'll look at that lyrically and see how that translates over. But to me, the, the impact Yellow. of it was the guy getting kind of shut down on it. You know, he's thinking all this stuff, and you're kind of feeling that with him. And then she goes, it's not about that, man. It's about me. So, yeah, either way, I just, uh, but I would pick uh, Garth or George, uh, a, a traditional singer. Uh, Blake Shelton's a good friend of mine, and he would, I don't know that he would get that serious with a song. He's kind of a fun guy, but he does sometimes. And there are a lot of great singers out there that I love. A lot of new ones coming in, too, that I'm really excited about. So, you've written some Christmas songs. I have. That's a different kind of task yeah, that is a task of, where you you're sort of being dictated to about what you have to write about like well you, you are said, you've you, got you your know, subject like, cut out for you you also are never going to make much money on it they play them for two weeks a year so there's no chart there's no airplay thing you know it's mi all minimal it's it's about the season that's it's just about having fun and uh or telling a, an important story that is good for that two weeks uh i wrote a song when i was really young uh, about things going on in my own household with uh, my family, uh, the Christmas cookie making. And so the song is called Christmas Cookie. And all I did is one of those little cassettes, like I told you about earlier, where I just put it on a cassette and kind of leave it. And I never thought much about it again. I'd play the song once in a while, but not the cassette. And lo and behold, 25 years after I wrote it, uh, Straight's office called and said, uh, do you have any Christmas songs? And I said, no. I don't, and, and I didn't, that I knew of, but my wife reminded me that I had that Christmas cookie song, and I said, man, but I wrote that. I was a kid. I didn't know anything about writing. It's it's kind of silly, and I don't hear George singing some of those words and stuff, and I got real analytical about it. She said, look, that's my mother's favorite song that you ever wrote. Just send it to him. So I did, and he cut that song on a Target special release, Target Store's Christmas record and I was blown away. And George came to me and he said, you know, that's going to be a classic someday. He said, it's going to take a long time because I only play them two weeks a year. He said, but they're going to play that every year until it just becomes a standard. I think he said standard, not a classic. 
But lo and behold, about two years later, one of my favorite groups of all time from right here in Nashville, the Oak Ridge Boys, recorded that song. And I went, wow, George Strait, Oak Ridge Boys? Does it get any better than that? That doubled the airplay at Christmas time because some play Oak Ridge and some play George and they play both. And then so far, the last time it got recorded, that's when I knew I had arrived as a songwriter when the guys out of Louisiana called Duck Dynasty put it on their Christmas record, <laughs> an album called Duck the Halls, you know. And so it got recorded by three at the time, really. I mean, George is huge, Oak Ridge Boys, Hall of Fame stuff, and then Duck Dynasty, who at that time were just, you know, household names. They still are, I guess. I don't keep up with that. But what an honor to have this song I wrote when I was a kid and had kind of just written off because of the time span. And all of a sudden, it's, and it gets played now, and I'll play it at a show, even in July. And that's the one people go, I had no idea you wrote that. Because they really don't do that at Christmas. Here's a song that was written by Gershwin. You know, they don't do that. Or, you know, here's, White Christmas. Yeah, yeah they don't do that. Uh, and they don't do a, here's one that uh, Gene Autry wrote for Christmas. They don't do that. They just play them. So people don't really know where they come from. And then I'll play that live, and people go, I had no idea. We've been playing that for Christmas for years. And Christmas songs are interesting. Uh, I've had a couple of them recorded. Uh, but, you know, it's not a commercial venture. It's just, uh, for me, that was completely by accident. But I did write one after that intentionally that George recorded as well, and I love it too. So That's old-time Christmas? Yeah, it's a beautiful song. And uh, that made that same album. So I was blown away because George goes in and cuts records in three days. And, and you just kind of hold your breath if he's got your song on hold. And when he came out of that studio, he had cut two of my songs. And I just, I, I was stunned because I didn't even think I had any Christmas stuff, you know. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.